Hi, I'm Jeffrey Gordon, president of the American Birding Association and executive producer of the podcast. I'd like to say thank you for a terrific third year here at the American Birding Podcast and a wonderful 50th anniversary year at the American Birding Association. We depend on your memberships and your donations, particularly at year's end, to be able to offer you great programs like the American Birding Podcast. Please give what you can at aba.org give or by calling us at 800-850-2473. Thank you so much and good birding and happy new year. Hello and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick, and Merry Christmas Bird Count season to all of you. Uh, the biggest community science effort of the birding year starts this weekend. I assume a lot of you are heading out in the field to count crows and house sparrows and whatever else you happen to encounter. Make sure that you check your Home Depot parking lots for the house sparrows. That is their preferred habitat. It's also the time of year that the American Ornithological Society's Classification Committee proposals start coming out. Uh, that's always very exciting, at least for me. We've already seen the first of what are typically three, less typically four, ballots containing all the fun potential splits and lumps that ornithologists and geneticists have discovered over the last year. There are usually a handful of common name change proposals in there, too. We've talked about them on the podcast before, usually with Nick Block. You may remember him. And we'll have him back on again in the new year to discuss these things in more detail once all of the proposals are out. But I did want to make a reference to one that I really like, albeit one that I don't know if the committee will go for. And that is the proposed Olive Warbler name change, because we have always joked about Olive Warbler being a particularly bad common name, even in a world that includes head scratchers like Ringneck Duck and you know, outright offensive names like McCown's Longspur. Olive Warbler is not Olive. It is not a Warbler. You know, for a long time, it was considered part of the Wood Warbler family. That's Perulidae. Uh, when I started birding, that's where it was. Turns out it is not even remotely <laughs> related to that family. Uh, it's one of the few families of birds that are endemic to North America. The others, because I know how y'all like trivia, are, as far as I can tell, and please let me know if I'm incorrect, uh, yellow-breasted chat, also a former wood warbler, interestingly enough, and these silky flycatchers like Phanopepla and uh, three others in Middle America. And yeah, you know, warbler is one of those names that has absolutely zero taxonomic significance. There are warblers in more than a half dozen families around the world. The only thing that they have in common is that they are all sort of smallish perching birds with very thin bills. So the proposal changes the name to something a little more befitting to that bird's uniqueness, changing olive warbler to Ocotero. It's a name used in the Spanish-speaking part of its range, which is to say almost all of its range, uh, refers to the colloquial name for pines, Ocote, which is the habitat that olive warbler prefers. If you've seen them in Arizona or New Mexico, you know that you have to go up into those higher elevation pine forests to find them. And, you know, Ocotero is more fun to say, and, and birds and birding should be fun, I think. 
as I as I mentioned earlier, I don't know if the AOS will agree. They they tend to be reluctant to make changes to common names, uh, rightly or wrongly. In any case, there's no reason why you can't call Olive Warbler an Okotero anyway. I think I just might. On the show today, it's another end of the year tradition, as much as we you know, have traditions here at the American Birding Podcast. Donna Shulman, book reviewer at 10,000 Birds, is back to talk bird books with me. We've whittled down the best bird books of 2019 to just five apiece. We're going to give you some holiday gift ideas right after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the last part of November, first part of December 2019. I didn't do one of these in the last episode because it was the live show, so we have a lot of catching up to do. The northeast part of the ABA area has seen some signs of an influx of European birds early in the winter. A gray lag goose in Groves Point, Nova Scotia was noteworthy for being one of the first records of this species in the ABA area for which there has been very little skepticism about its origin. This definitely seems like a wild bird. It is here at the right time of year in the right part of the continent. Records of gray leg goose, uh, you know, from which is derived most of our most common domestic goose varieties, uh, have always been complicated by worries about provenance, but this is a species that has been increasing on its breeding grounds in the same way that barnacle and pink-footed goose have, and those species are now expected annually in North America. Uh, gray leg definitely has the potential to do the same. Also from the same general direction, a northern lapwing turned up in Bristol, Massachusetts in the last part of November. This handsome crested plover is less than annual in eastern Canada, but records into the northeastern U.S. are even less common. The last time we had one was in the winter of 2012-2013, when dozens of lapwings were seen on the eastern seaboard all the way south to Georgia. I certainly wouldn't predict such a movement this time, but it isn't unprecedented, and it's something for birders to keep in the back of their mind when they're scanning those turf farms. On the short list of one of the most bizarre, maybe even tragic, vagrant stories of 2019 is the tale of the Ross's Gull of Seattle, Washington scene last week. Any sighting of this stunning rosy pink arctic gull in the lower 48 is definitely exciting, but they never seem to fare very well. Ross's gull seems to be as noteworthy to the local raptor population as to the local birders. And this one was reported only to be captured and eaten by one of the resident bald eagles right in front of a stunned crowd of birders. And this is actually remarkably similar to the story of the last Ross's gull in the lower 48, which was in the Bay Area of California. It was taken by a local peregrine falcon. It is a rough life for out-of-towners. Some first records to report. The last month has seen two provincial firsts for Saskatchewan, both from opposite directions, interestingly enough, and they ended up not that far away from each other. From the south, the province's first great-tailed grackle was seen in Nokomis, and from the north, a tundra bean goose in Regina also represents a provincial first record. And way back in mid-November, a tropical kingbird was seen in Lake County, Ohio. That's a first for Ohio. While it is not unusual for tropical kingbirds to make those late summer, fall forays into the heart of the continent, this individual got a little more than it bargained for in terms of unseasonably bitterly cold weather, and it unfortunately succumbed to that weather. So now we are caught up. This was a longer than usual look at the rare bird reports of the last couple 
last few weeks. Uh, for all the rarities you can handle, go to the ABA blog, blog.aba.org. Every Friday morning, you can also check out the ABA's Rare Bird Alert Facebook group. You can find that at facebook.com slash groups slash ABA Rare, or you can follow us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. So we're once again getting to the end of the year, and it's time for a look back at the best bird-related books published in 2019. Once again, 10,000 Birds book reviewer Donna Schulman joins me to talk about our favorites. Uh, Donna and I will share our top five in the show notes. This list could contain field guides, family-specific guides, narratives from well-known authors and publishers, uh, the whole gamut of bird literature. Uh, Welcome, Donna. It's great to have you back again. Hey, Nate. So 2019, it felt to me, I mean, maybe I judge each year's bird books by like the field guides that come out. There were not that many field guides that came out this year, but it was still a pretty, pretty good year for, for bird books in general. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, Agreed. Um, My initial reaction was, oh, well, what happened this year? But then when I reviewed it, I saw (laughs) we had breath. We we had books for photographers, for families, mm. for children, plus two really good bird identification books. And yeah. And books by some of our better writers as well. Yeah, absolutely. So we each made our list. We'll share those in the show notes. Do you want to uh start at um I don't know. Our number one and two books were actually the same in the same order, which I think is the first time that's ever happened. Um Maybe because we didn't coordinate it quite as well this year as we have in the past. Um, but we'll start at number five. Like, what was your fifth best book of 2019? Oh, uh, Ruby's Birds. Okay. Which is a children's book. Wow. That's We've never done a children's book before. I thought it was time. I'm a yeah. grandmother now, so I'm looking at children's books. Yeah. Um, my kids are a little bit older well my daughter is actually in the age where she would really enjoy that book what did what did you like about that book is it's like children's books are interesting because they've got a a writing component and also sort of an illustration component mm-hmm. and if one of those doesn't work it can really you know affect the entire book it's it's a beautiful book and um well written it's put out by uh, the cornell lab of ornithology which has mm-hmm. started putting out a number of books but what I liked about it, it's about a little girl, a young girl uh, who lives in a very specific place, New York City, where oh, I live. Yeah, close to um, your heart. And it's a young girl, an African-American girl who lives with her family near Central Park. And a neighbor, Eva from Costa Rica, takes mm-hmm. her for a walk one afternoon and they see a very special bird. Would it spoil it too much to say what the bird is? Oh, it's a golden-winged warbler. <laughs> oh, well, that is a very special bird. Yes. That's like legitimately a special bird. <laughs> there actually was one in Central Park this spring, maybe two. Yeah. This I love the story because it's about a young girl getting excited about observing birds, and at the end she introduces her family to how you look at a bird. Mm-hmm. And I love the illustrations because they're very lively. Uh, they're almost like cinematic. They have different angles and close-ups. They show that Central Park is a friendly place. I think if you're not from New York City, there's like a lot of stereotypes about the city. <laughs> <laughs> Every page has a bird in it somewhere. So 
I don't know if everyone would want this, but at the end of the book, the lab has put in some activities for you to do okay. with children. Yeah, that's a great idea. It's nice to see, um, you know, Cornell Lab has this reputation of being this, you know, high-minded academic institution. It's nice that they are uh, getting into bird outreach as well in this way. That's kind of cool. Yes. I'll have to check that out. Maybe put it on my uh, on my daughter's list. Yeah, so my number, my number five best book of the year was um, the newest ABA field guide, this one to Wisconsin. You know, it, the ABA field guides are sort of a little bit cookie cutter, but, you know, in, in a good way. You know what you're going to get with them. Amazing photographs from Brian Small, good text <laughs> from a local birder who knows the ropes, as it were of the place that they are covering. And and Wisconsin is is what you'd expect. It's Chuck Hagner. Uh, Bird people may know him as the former editor of Birdwatching Magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, he's done a really nice job with that. One of the things that I really liked about it is that Scott Nix, the publisher of these guides, have sort of changed up the way the guides look. I was sort of shocked a little bit when I when I saw the Bird Guide to Wisconsin at the Rio Grande Valley when we had it at our booth. Uh, they've rounded the corners to make it easier to mm-hmm. stick in a pack. They've made it, you know, it's it's not quite as shiny, not quite as glossy. I think they're using recycled paper now. It's all kind of a, a nice thing. They still cost the same, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's the little things that might make it uh, more useful for a birder. I Yeah, I agree. And I'm a big fan of the series. I think this time of year, this is a great book or series of books to consider for gifts for mm-hmm. the beginning birder or non-birder yeah. in your life. I've Anytime somebody moves to a state that's in part of the series, I'm like, oh, good, <laughs> yeah, right. I can send you this book. <laughs> and the, you know, the upper Midwest is now like really well covered. There's, uh, you know, Michigan and Minnesota and Illinois already came out. Now there's Wisconsin. Ohio comes out early next year. There's Pennsylvania was one of the first ones. So, you know, the Great Lakes states are well covered. I have it must be an early copy. I have a copy of Ohio here. Oh, do you? Did, so I, is it, I don't know that it's released yet. Or maybe it has been. Yeah, I need to check again. But I know it's coming out very soon. He uh, said, I got Christmas. it yesterday. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> but on request. But yeah. um, Ethan Kistler is a well-known young birder. So I think this, this series is also great in that it gives people, including you, um, mm-hmm opportunities to do these field guides and yeah. then, then you know how it feels. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's as a, as an author of these field guides, I know the work that goes, that goes into it. It's a, it's a, it, it's a labor of love to some extent, but it's really great to see them out in the wild and used the way they're supposed to be. How about uh, number four? Let's move up the list. What was your fourth best book uh, of the year? This is probably a book that, Probably most of our listeners haven't heard of Urban Ornithology, 150 Years of Birds in New York City by P.A. Buckley, Walter Sedwitz, William J. Norse, and John Kieran. It's from Cornell University Press. Cornell getting it done this year. Um, But the title's a bit misleading. Urban Ornithology, you would think it was about, you know, all things ornithological. Mm-hmm. Our 150 Years of Birds in New York City is a little closer, but it's really very specifically about a certain area in the Bronx. And the authors, only one of the author is still alive. So I get the impression this has been 
a labor of love and persistence for a number of years. But what they did was they focused on this area and uh, the first chapter of the book gives a very detailed overview of this area and what has happened to it over the past 150 years, how development has changed it. Mm -hmm. And then most of the book is species accounts where they combine data from serve bird surveys done over the past 150 years, hmm. historical surveys, uh, Christmas bird count data. And I think at the end, they also introduced eBird data, although mm -hmm. that doesn't play as large as a part as I think if they did it, maybe started now that it might. Mm -hmm. So for each of these species, you get a profile of what has happened to this bird over the years, um, whether it, ha it has gone from abundance to scarce or extirpated. And they also bring in, they bring in knowledge that only someone who has birded that area for many, many years would know. Mm -hmm. So in a way, it's also writing down a lot of institutional knowledge, area yeah. knowledge that otherwise yeah. would be forgotten. I love it when books like this come out for that reason. I, I'm not a New York City birder. I don't have any sort of particular interest in, in birds in New York, but I love these sorts of books. I love that they are out there and people are, are putting them together. I mean, these are just like gold mines if you're looking for mm -hmm. information about the historical record uh, of birds. And um, so often this stuff gets lost or is stuck in ornithological journals that yes. are hard to, hard to find or maybe not put online. Um, so it's always great to have this sort of thing available and you knew you know new york city has such a long and storied ornithological history too so um yeah so it's even more relevant that because of that and i i put it on the top five list not that i expect everybody to buy it but i thought this is a good example of what could mm -hmm. be done with the data we're collecting yes i think it's being positioned more as an ornithology than a birding book but mm -hmm. I, I know local birders are using really? it. And yeah. um, like I said, it's a good role model for other birders. My next book will be one that is sort of a little bit different. It's it's the Ken Kaufman, A Season on the Wind. Well, maybe not totally different. It's not a field guide or a, or a you know, a, a it's, a, it's, it's not a field guide, but it's sort of like a story, a story mm -hmm. of spring migration on the northwest part of Ohio. And, you know, Ken, anytime Ken puts something out, it's, it's worth taking a look at. He's such a, um, a good writer. Um, he tells the story really well. I interviewed him on the podcast uh, earlier this year about it. Um, it's a neat book. You, you can go back and if you want like my detailed thoughts on it, you can go back and, and check that out, or maybe you already have. But um, it's worth noting just, just because it's Ken Kaufman and it's such a, such a great book. Very well written. Yeah. And I like the way he goes from the very specific, you know, here I am birding in Lake Erie, Ohio, but he mm -hmm. then brings a very global outlook to what he's looking at or writing about. Yeah, I just need to get sort of the inside look on some of the issues that Black Swamp Bird Observatory has had with mm -hmm. wind, wind turbine generation and all that stuff up there as well. How about your next one? We'll keep moving right on up the list. Ah, well, this is another, I think this is different than any we've done before. It's Mastering Bird Photography, The Art, Craft, and Technique of Photographing Birds and Their Behavior by Mari Reed. 
Mari Reed, she has been, um, she's had her work published on the cover of Birding Magazine, maybe it's Birding Magazine. She's, she's a wonderful photographer. Um, I, I've birded with her and in person, she's always very low key, very helpful and really has mastered many techniques for capturing bird behavior. Um, mm-hmm. And she has put all this in this book, which is available in hard copy and as an ebook. And what I really like about it is she really focuses a lot on the field craft a bird or photographer would need to capture bird behavior, as opposed to those like portraits that we often see right. online. With the soft bokeh in the background mm-hmm. and the bird on a, sl- on a stick in the foreground. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and she also discusses uh, ethics in photographing birds. You know, at a time when so many birders carry cameras around, I mean, I certainly do, you know, we're all sort of amateur photographers and and all sort of looking to improve our craft, our abilities. It's always nice to have something like that written in a way for the, for the layperson because cameras can be terribly complicated, they feel like sometimes. Um, do you consider yourself a photographer? I consider myself a birder who doesn't feel the bird sighting is complete unless she photographs it. Yeah. And so did you feel like you got a lot of really useful information from this that you yes. can like put into put into play when you're out birding? I, I take it down every few months and read parts of it because then I mm-hmm. feel like Mari's voice is in my head. So let's say I see a duck and the, the duck is the head is down and I hear her voice saying, you know, sit and watch, watch the behavior, watch the behavioral cues. Um, so I found her tremendously helpful. Hmm. That's the sort of thing that can make you a, a better birder as well. Yes. <laughs> close observation. Yes. And, and a lot of it is, of course, common sense, but you just don't think of it. And right. some of it is not common sense. Some of it is because she's been photographing birds for 30 years. Right. So for my number three, I wanted to, this is also kind of a, a throwback to a conversation I had way back at the beginning of this podcast. Uh, I talked to Nathan Peeplo uh, of earbirding.com, sort of the the master of bird vocalizations. And uh, he had just come out with this field guide uh, from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, uh, the Peterson Guide to Bird Vocalizations of to Eastern North America. This year, he the next one came out, which was his guide to Western birds. Um, I, it's worth noting on this sort of list just because it's his approach is so novel. But, you know, it's a similar book to the one that came out for the eastern half of the continent. Uh, you know, just as interesting, just as useful, um, just as great for, you know, developing this sort of common language around bird vocalization. Yes, it's it's sort of like when... You have Eastern and Western field guides, and they're published several months apart, but they're both very good. I haven't seen it, but I'm sure the Western birds he covers are significantly different in some ways from Mm -hmm. some of the Eastern bird sounds. You know, there's a lot of interesting things going on with uh, corvids and chickadees and titmice and things like that that are, you know, even if you're an Eastern birder, it's it's a nice book to have, you know, on your shelf. Uh, just because if, if you're interested in birds, because there's a lot of cool stuff going on there. Um, so now I guess we're finally to the last two, mm-hmm. the top two books of uh, of the year for us. They were both the same books. I, I don't really, it's more like instead of a one and a two, it's more like a one A and a one B 
uh, for me because I think they're both really great. Uh, which one do you want to approach first? <laughs> let's do sparrows first let's do sparrows all right so uh rick writes peterson reference guide to sparrows of north america the definitive i think it's safe to say the definitive book on sparrows on the continent and by the continent i mean all the way down through into mexico because there's a lot of really cool sparrows in here that i was not necessarily aware of and you know rick's such a a great writer and a creative thinker. Uh, there's a lot of kind of neat things he does with taxonomy and naming conventions in this book. Yes. Um, you know, very, very Rick and uh, very much worth, you know, considering. No patronymic. I can't say this word. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no possessive S on the yes. patronym. That's yes. right. Yeah. The first field guide to birds uh, on the continent where he does away, follows the, the Floyd convention. Right. <laughs> getting rid of the possessives. I, th I think there was a hope that by the time this came out, this would actually they would have be the rule. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it didn't happen, but it's still, you know, an artifact of this time. Um, but, uh, you know, Nelson Sparrow, LeConte Sparrow, Lincoln Sparrow. Uh, you know, and because Sparrow has that S there, too, it feels like you're saying the same thing anyway. Mm -hmm. So Lincoln Sparrow and Lincoln Sparrow, there's not a lot of difference in the way you say it. So... Yeah, but it's a, it's a neat book. What did you think of it? Well, I like sparrows to begin with. They're, mm -hmm. they're amongst my favorite bird family. So I I just loved it. Um, I I have to confess, I have a photograph in it. Not a great photograph, oh, but nice. I guess he needed one of that particular bird at that particular time of life. Um, I love that it's so Rick, that it's not <laughs> yeah. just a cookie cutter field guide, that it reflects... Yeah his interest, especially in the historical study of, of these birds. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, images of uh, museum specimens in addition to images of birds in life. Right, and, and he talks about how the species was uh, found and named mm -hmm. and um, some of the changes that the naming went through. Maybe if you're just interested in identification, that would get in the way, but I, mm -hmm. I think knowing that sort of adds a lot of context for appreciating the birds. Sure. And the whole scope of ornithological history on the continent as mm -hmm. well. Some interesting things. Yeah. And when you get a species specific guide like this one, you sort of want that. You sort of, you sort of expect that. And he, he absolutely delivers. Yes. And, and of course there's discussion of subspecies for where mm -hmm. it's relevant. Yeah, I like the fact that he broke up all the dark-eyed juncos. Yes. <laughs> and considered them all individually. Yes, I forgot about that. But yeah, yeah, that's a big, very, very interesting part of the book is that I think he does that for a, several, a couple of species. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's and he goes into detail on all those subspecies, too. I mean, you talked about how he does the historical context for a lot of these birds. Every subspecies of junco mm -hmm. has the historical context <laughs> on it. It's, um, it's really cool. Yeah, yeah. And like all of the books in the Peterson series, it's well-made, you know, thick, yes. thick paper, uh, nicely bound. Uh, the photographs are printed beautifully. You know, I know you're an index and notes fan. <laughs> uh, there are copious notes yes. in yes. this book. Of course. It's a Rick Wright book. Rick. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. It's worth having. And um, Houghton Mifflin did an amazing job, uh, Peterson Field Guide series, with it. Uh, so we'll move on to the, the other one, which is another 
family specific well, not really family it covers a ton of birds it's more of a more of an environment sort of book mm-hmm. and that is the uh from princeton university press the uh oceanic birds of the world a photo guide by howell and zufelt um I, you know, I'll be honest, like coming into this book, I didn't really know what to expect, but when I finally got it in my hand, boy, it is, um, it is amazing. Mm -hmm. We talked about Rick's Sparrow book being comprehensive. This is comprehensive as well. You know, Steve Howell is, there's probably only a handful of people on the planet who know as much about seabirds as he does. Um, Kirk Zufelt is a phenomenal photographer and uh, no slouch himself on seabirds. Um, there's a lot of really great stuff in it. When you say oceanic birds, it covers the gamut of birds that spend time on the ocean from sulids to penguins to yes. ox to <laughs> tube noses. Uh, it, 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 it covers a lot, and it's really neat to see all these birds uh, all together. And, and, and they're very rigid in what they include, so yeah. it doesn't really include a lot of goals or turns, because the, they explain those are birds you can see from shore. We're right. talking about right. birds you got to get in a boat to see. Right. Or go to some <laughs> deserted island or right. see you know, where they're nesting. Being a howl book, it does uh, take some liberties with taxonomy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in a book like this, you kind of need to. And um, I, it may well bear out that you know, they're, they were right about you know, where to draw the lines and where not to draw the lines. Um, I love seabirds. I'm a, I'm a North Carolina partisan. I love uh, pelagics out of Hatteras. It's, it's a super useful book and it's not that big. You know, it's yeah. funny because Steve did uh, the tube noses of North America and um, boy, that was a much bigger book than this one. Yes. I'm looking at my bookshelf trying to figure out which one that was. The petrels, albatrosses, and storm petrels of North America. Exactly. Yeah. Also, right. Princeton University. Yeah, that's book, a, which is that's a, it's, a, it's a great book too. Yeah, but, that's um, a, but that's a big book mm-hmm. um, because I think he wanted to make a book that people could bring on a boat. No, oh, totally. Yeah. Um, yeah. Although you would need a big pocket to put it in, but it was going a bag, <laughs> a bag. <laughs> a shoulder bag, <laughs> maybe a camera bag. Um, but it's it's fascinating because he's not just reporting on taxonomy and research um, because he's so well versed in it. He he gives his own opinions and conclusions and organizes the book around those. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's kind of a Steve Howell thing. Yeah, <laughs> but it's it's also a document showing how much we still don't know every other mm-hmm. species. It's a cryptic group, a cryptic series yeah. species. I mean, I'm sorry, but, and the photographs I'm, I'm looking at it as I'm talking. Yeah. As am I, <laughs> <laughs> the photographs are very well planned out to show mm-hmm. comparisons of males, females, uh, similar species, uh, so much thought went into it. Yeah, and the maps are great too. And I mean, it's just it's it's just a, a really great book with a ton of useful information. Or you know, if you go out to sea, or just you know, interesting information if you're interested in in the lives of these kind of mm-hmm. amazing birds. Yeah, I'll never see most of the <laughs> no, in here because yeah. I get very seasick. But yeah, I, it's got a, uh, you know, the images, the plates have a little bit of a Richard Crosley mm-hmm. vibe. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean that in like 
the best possible way. Cause right. I think that Crosley style works really well with some species, less well with other species, but you know, open country birds, open ocean birds, flocking birds, it works super well with. Yeah. You get to see all these, all these seabirds from every angle. It's, um, I, I feel like I'm repeating myself and I probably am, but it's a, it's a really great book and, and it's unique. You know, it is unique. And, um, together this oceanic birds of the world and the Peterson's Rick Wright's sparrow book are, I mean, they're as good as any two books that we've had since we started doing this, I think. Yes. Um, and they're books for the avid birder. Mm-hmm. I, because we're doing this in November, I always think in terms of, the holiday season. Mm-hmm. So if, if you're listening to this podcast, this is like the time to sort of give an, a little note to that person you expect to have a gift from to receive these right. titles. Yeah. yeah. You know, this will, this podcast will go out in early December. So, uh, right in that time, this is, this is when you want to put on your Amazon wish list or wherever you prefer to get your, yes. or tell your local bookstore or whatever, uh, <laughs> wherever you get your Yeah. The, both of us, I think agree that these are the the two best titles of the year mm-hmm. for the really serious birder. The the others appeal as you said in the introduction to other parts of the field. Yeah. Just a reminder, uh, a lot of these titles interestingly enough have been reviewed on in Birding Magazine. You can find those reviews on the ABA blog. Uh, I will put a link to those in the show notes uh at the aba blog for this for this episode um the ones that are not there will probably be there in the next few months as we work through them um, and ten thousand bird reviews and ten thousand birds as well um <laughs> yeah you can find donna's reviews at ten thousand birds she's a little bit quicker on the draw than and, we are and my uh, colleagues we have yeah. other writers reviewing books too so 10,000 birds, you can look under the tab reviews and you can get uh all of those um donna this is always one of the highlights uh, of my year. Uh, thank you for uh, coming by and talking books with me again. My pleasure. Have a good holiday and the best to yeah. your family. Happy holidays to you as well. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast and the other free resources that the ABA provides to birders, the best way to help support us is by joining the ABA. Membership benefits include our fantastic magazines, opportunities to join us for ABA events, discounts to our partners like Beautyo Books, and the knowledge you care about contributing to a vibrant and active birding community in the U.S., Canada, and beyond. You can learn more at aba.org slash join or check out our e-memberships at aba.org slash e-member. I don't have any special shout-outs this time. I know that I'm way behind on that, but we will get all of them for the last two months in the last episode of the year coming up in a couple weeks, so please be patient. Rest assured, we still appreciate you joining the ABA and noting the podcast as a reason. Executive producer of this podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, who notes that the Bachman Sparrow, that little chubby Pineland specialist of the Southeast, could theoretically be called the Okotero Sparrow. John Lowry is the technical producer and can't help but notice that those hormone-ravaged male Bachman sparrows setting up territories could conceivably be referred to as Okotero loco sparrows. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley, who have suggested that the best way to cruise the sandhills looking for Bachman sparrow would be to rent some sort of Chevrolet sports car. Nothing too 
bright, though you don't want to scare them away. And Oco Taro Loco Sparrow Black Camaro, if you will. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birder, and on Twitter at aba. And far be it for me to be the wet blanket, but it all sounds very expensive. So this is uh, Oco Taro Loco Sparrow Black Camaro Mucho Dinero, if you catch my drift. And even if you don't, allow me to apologize. Questions and comments can come to me at podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time.